Amen. All right. So tonight, continuing Genesis, and like I said, um, you, sh- you get to Abraham, things really, really begin to take off. That is, as you begin to look through biblical history, things start becoming a lot more familiar. You start hearing names, you start seeing themes, you hear stories, things that are very, very common to you. But the question is, is you know, up to that point, what brought this about? And then once you gather that and you see the different things that God does, by the time you get to Exodus, I mean, you, you have a grasp on what has happened to humanity and also what God, in his plan, his divine plan, what he sees for his people. And I hope that becomes more and more clear to you as we go through this because it's important. Like I said, there's a heartbeat throughout Scripture that we need to understand. So let's pray for just a moment and then we'll dive back in. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, please bless the reading of your word this time together. Father, I pray that we would hear, that we would understand, and I pray above all things that Jesus Christ Your Son is glorified. Help us to hear your word, to understand it, to apply it to our lives, Father, and to take it with us, Father, that it may be a treasure above treasures in our hearts and lives, a guiding light as we serve you, Father, that it brings glory to you, and it also brings freedom to those that are held in bondage. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me share a couple things with you uh, about biblical interpretation, okay? Now, some people want to know kind of where, where you come from, where you're going, those kind of things. Whenever you look at the Scripture, what do you see? Well, I believe all of you know that I believe the Word of God is the infallible and errant Word of God, okay? Absolutely. I believe the Word of God 100%. And uh, if you go back, and I probably don't need to dig this far into it, but I want to share something in this respect with you. If you go back and you look at the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, it's not that people do not recognize that in the copying of Scripture that every once in a while a word might have gotten reversed or something like that, or put it this way, this is something that they used for me in biblical interpretation, uh, and something that I also use with students whenever we're talking together is just because, like in our language, we say black cat, Right? There was a black cat that crossed the street. In Spanish, we would say there was a cat black. The words, the words may be reversed, but the meaning is identical, okay? Every once in a while in a scribal, I guess you'd say gloss or something like that, or where they were copying the scripture, something like that might happen, but it does not. Now listen, people. Maybe I don't need to, to, to say this, but maybe it is only fair that I tell you this. Our Bible right now, we know that is right at 99%, very close to it, around 98 to 99%, identical to the day it was penned. Somebody might say, you're saying that there may be, you know, a 0.2% or something like that, or a 2%, excuse me, difference in there where there might be something that's different. People, hold on. Before a printing press was ever invented, people copied these things by hand. And every once in a while, every once in a while, somebody might have, like I said, reversed a word, or they might have saw a word that uh, there, there were two different ways of writing that word, and every once in a while, somebody might have put something in there that a scholar might go, wait a minute, what did they mean? And say, oh, okay, I got it. There is nothing, 
And textual criticism or biblical interpretation, when you look through the Scripture, that says that our Bible has been altered or changed in any way. Let me say this. Our Bible, we know what Moses penned. We know what Isaiah might have penned. We know what Paul penned. We know what the Word of God says. That is never a question. And where there may be a hole in a manuscript somewhere, we have another manuscript that has it there. And the truth is, is whenever it comes down to it, okay, our Bible is perfectly reliable. But here's what, here's what you need to understand. The original books themselves, that is, as they were penned, in other words, whether Paul used a scribe, whether he wrote it himself, whether uh, Moses was sitting there writing, uh, those are called autographs. None of those exist. They have long since perished. But we do have copies. And as you look at them over the years and over the centuries, you compare them as they've been copied over the years, there is no other book of antiquity that has the attestation of the New Testament and even the Old Testament. It's not a question of what they wrote. And the people that do biblical criticism are not just Christians. There are atheists, they are Muslims, they are people from all walks of life that look at all kinds of different books. So if you're asking the question, is my Bible reliable? Yes, it is. Okay, you don't have to worry about that. But every once in a while, somebody's going to look at you and they're going to throw something up and say, well, you know there's errors in Scripture. Uh, Hold on just a minute. You have to explain that to me before you say it. But if you ever want to go back and you actually want to study textual criticism, I will sit down with you and we will go through it and we'll even pull up some manuscripts online and I'll let you take a look at them. Don't let anybody tell you that we don't know what the original Bible said. Yes, we do. Okay? So that being said, I want to tell you something about my, I guess you would say, the school of thought thought that I go through. I believe in choosing the most direct and simplest approach to interpreting Scripture first. Okay? So, in other words, I'm not looking for all kinds of spiritual meanings around it first. That's not to say they don't apply, and that's not saying that we shouldn't go there as the Bible leads us to go there. But what it does mean is rather than looking for the strangest and wildest interpretation first, because it might fit something that I might like, go direct, go small, look at what it says, and try to interpret what is there. There are two different ways of looking at Scripture. One is, or let me say this, interpretive approach One is going to be exegesis. It's where we get exodus. It means to pull out. Pull out meaning there. Eisegeting is reading into the scripture. And it is not necessarily without use. It has its place. But you must be careful reading into the scripture. Okay? For instance, if you look at the Old Testament tabernacle. Okay? Well... It's a tent, folks. It has tent pegs. It has all these different things on That's what it is. But yet Paul, when you come into the New Testament, begins to talk about elements within the tabernacle and the temple, and he begins applying them to Christ. He's an apostle. He can do that. Okay? And he can show you the spiritual meaning and interpretation in those things. But that doesn't mean we pick up the Bible and say, wow, 
There was a guy who got his ear cut off, you know, in the Bible, and that means that all of us are hard of hearing and we can't hear and all that. That's a spiritual interpretation. That is not the direct meaning of the text. So understand whenever I approach it first, I want us to look for what's there, what we can ferret out by God's wisdom. Then as God begins to reveal, we can broaden that, okay? That is safe approach. It's kind of like whenever you are reading the scripture, you understand this. The Bible, please do not misinterpret what I'm about to say. Don't throw rocks, okay? This makes perfect sense once you get it. The Bible was not written, quote, unquote, to us. For instance, the book or the epistle to the Colossians. Anybody hear Colossians? No. Or to Colossae, okay? That's not what it means, okay? The Bible was written for us. It's written for all generations, eternally, applicable to everybody. But that means that whenever we're reading books like Acts, we have to understand that there's a particular group of people at a particular time going through a particular situation to whom the book was written. And we can understand that, and then we can apply it to our lives. You see what I'm saying? Everybody nod, say no, uh, yell heretic, it doesn't matter to me, okay, at this moment. Okay, here we go. So, whenever we look at these things, we're going to study a figure like Melchizedek, okay? We're going to study him uh, next session. The reason being is we're going to give a little bit of attention to him. And whenever you look at Melchizedek, there are interpretations for who this person is from being an actual human being living upon the earth to Jesus Christ himself, uh, to, let me, get, let me get this right, the archangel Michael, okay, to somebody completely different. And the question is, is, you know, people look at me and say, well, all these interpretations are all valid. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But what I'm saying is start with what's written right in front of you, and we expand from there, Okay. All right, so let's go back in here. So what's happened so far is we have seen a beautiful, wonderful creation. You say, Shane, you repeat this often. I do because you need to see it. Beautiful, perfect, holy creation, nothing evil, nothing wrong, all is good. You have a perversion of what is good, evil enters. Whenever evil enters, it goes from disobedience to immediately going into people killing one another, and then just, I mean, killing rampantly. And our hearts being drawn away from serving the living God. Human beings are driven, it seems like, as you begin to look at humanity as it expands, humanity, for some reason, does not want to serve the Lord. It seeks its own, desires for its own. They are rejecting God. But in the heart of that, as you well know, from the beginning, God has chosen to save humanity. He is not going to cast them away. There will be one who is going to come through the seed of the woman that is going to save mankind. That ultimately is Jesus. But understand, long before Jesus' name is spoken, this is a promise. The Father has promised that he is going to make a way for you and me. Okay? Then after that, what we begin to see is that people's hearts, as they grow more and more corrupt, God says, enough. As he continues to reach out to mankind, as he continues to offer mercy, we see this celestial 
You know, we, we see evil and Satan coming down to man. We see mankind's rebellion. We see God finally saying enough, and he wipes man off the face of the earth with the exception of the family of Noah and representative animals, okay? So then they come upon the earth, and then we begin, okay? God begins working with man again through Noah. Now, as God begins working with Noah, what we see is that humankind continues to rebel. It is a recurring thing. Man, for some reason, wants something else as long as it's not God. So what ends up happening is we get to the Tower of Babel. Now, in that, we didn't touch it too much. I'm, I'm, I wanted to get through my, I guess you would say, the interpretive method a lot of times that people use whenever they look at the Scripture. Uh, because the Tower of Babel raises all kinds. People, people, what seems to me to be a very direct and straightforward story, boy, I mean, just theories go left and right on this kind of stuff. Why, 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 why is this happening? I'm going to tell you what happened. Human beings wanted to build a tower, if you will, and yes, it says to heaven, but the idea behind the tower is to bring down the divine. That's what they're doing. They wanted to say, we've got a place, we're going to bring down the divine, we We, in essence, will make a name for ourselves. We, God, is going to do it our way. And God looks down and he says, oh no, that's not happening. So what does he do? He does something very simple in, in, in our thinking. We might say, well, you know, he could have judged them. He could have done a lot of things. But look at it this way. God ultimately told them, don't make a name for yourselves. Don't set out to be great. You know, do what I tell you to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread throughout the earth, and I'll take care of the rest of this stuff. You ultimately belong to me, to bring glory to me. So he tells them this, but so what does he do? He confuses their language. Now they have no choice but to separate. And we talked about how in the New Testament we have all those separate languages in the day of Pentecost now coming together to worship God. Okay, so... Just follow me in this respect. Humanity in their rebellion, and the rebellion to be their own masters, to look at God as someone to not to be quote-unquote worship, but more or less serves them, God in turn judges them. Okay, now in all of this, in this sea of humanity, where people have rebelled and turned against God, where most people are idolaters. Now, does that mean that everybody is an idolater? No. And let me tell you why I say so, or why I think so, and I believe that the Scripture says so. If you remember, whenever we go back to Seth right after him, it said that there were those people that began to call on the name of the Lord. I believe that that has continued. There are those, a remnant, a small group within the earth that have continued to say Lord and to call out to him. Whenever we do look at Melchizedek, it says he is a priest of the Most High God, regardless of what might be said about him or the mystery surrounding him, because it does not give us his lineage. It tells us nothing about him, it just says he is. Okay? And that Jesus Christ is, is after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, it's a higher order. Literally, what that means is if you look at Exodus, whenever the priestly system is established, okay, that these are going to be the priests and this is what they would do, we have somebody before the law is even given who is loved and served and worshiped God, an eternal priesthood, if you will. And that is the order after which we talk about Jesus Christ, an eternal priest, okay? 
So, but if Melchizedek existed, you also see once again that there are those that love God, that are seeking to serve him, to follow after him, okay? And even within the lineages of Noah. So whenever you get to Noah, you look at Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Through Shem, as you go down, you're going to get to Methuselah, you're going to get to Enoch, the one that walked with God and was not for God took him. And as you continue to come on down, you wind up coming to a fellow named Terah, and then after him, his son, Abram, soon to be Abraham. Exalted father, soon to be father of nations or father of great multitudes. Okay? But here's the deal. In the midst of all this that is going on, people the Bible does not tell us, so we do not know the actual experience that Abraham had with God. All it says is that God spoke to him, maybe that's what he did. But I want you to understand that if you were sitting in your house today and God were to all of a sudden, boom, the heavens are open and he speaks to you. And he says, Billy Joe. Okay, He says, I am the Lord God of your ancestors. Uh, I am calling to you to do ABC. Okay? Uh, you wouldn't just sit there and go, wow, that's neat. Okay? Yeah, I'll get right on that. No. It would be a life-changing experience. I believe this is kind of like that burning bush experience for Moses. God has shown up. He has looked at a man. He has looked at the heart of that man. It does not mean that he's perfect. It does not mean that he is better than everybody else. But I can tell you by his walk and the things that he did, this is a man after God's heart. Just like David. Not perfect but a man who is willing to listen. And saints, uh, this is almost sermonic in nature, but just, just hear me out. That's the thing. Is there somebody who will listen to me? We keep saying it. We shared it this morning. God looks down. Is there somebody who will listen to me, who will love me, who will obey me? And if you will, he will use you to change the world. He will definitely change your world, but he will use you to change the world around you if you listen to him because you can't help it. You listen to God, God is always doing something. And he has a plan and he has a purpose and you are part of it. And guess what? The people out there are part of it too. So anyway, Abraham will listen to him. So he comes to Abraham and he says, here's the deal. He says, Abraham, and now let's start back in 12 for just a moment. We'll start in 12.1. And let's take a look at this. But it says, now the Lord had said to Abram, okay, he hasn't changed his name yet. But he says, get out of your country from your father's house. And we even ask the question, which I find that interesting, you know, that a lot of people ask that question about why Lot with him. I, I, when I've done my research, all of them seem to say the same thing. They said that they were family. Okay? And, and, and he probably was responsible for that. Or he loved Abraham and he wanted to go with him. Uh, God didn't say, you know, uh, tell your family to get lost. We don't love you. We don't need you anymore. He said, but you do need to leave where you are and you need to go where I'm going. So, but anyway, so God speaks to him and listen to the words. He says, get out of your country. And the New Testament tells us in Hebrews, he didn't know the land he was going to. He might have heard about it, but he didn't know it. In other words, God says, get up, go. So he's going. Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you. So he tells him to go. And listen to this after it. He says, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Not only will I bless you, I'm going to make you a blessing to others. And Abraham, if you do what I tell you to do, 
I will make your name great. Don't you set out. This is the problem with mankind. Mankind sets out to make a name for themselves. They want everybody to honor them. Pat my back. Attaboys. All the time. They want that honor. And God says, no, do not seek the honor that comes from man. Seek the honor that comes from me. And he says, Abraham, if you'll listen to me, I'll bless you. Okay? So, I will bless those that bless you, and I will even curse the one who curses you. People, that's a bold statement. We all the time like the good stuff, you know, in, in saying, God will bless us. But listen to what God's saying. God says, I will fight for you. The one who helps you, blesses you, and works with you, he said, they in, tune, in turn will be blessed. But he said, the one that resists, the one that fights you, understand they're fighting against me. And the one that would curse you, I'll curse them myself. That's a pretty powerful statement to make. We're in this together, Abraham. And then the biggie statement. And in you, Abraham, or Abram, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here is once again, God back in Genesis 3.15, between the two seeds, uh, New Testament, whenever the Bible talks of the land before the foundation of the world being slain for us. Here it is, God telling him, Abraham, I'm, I'm setting this thing up. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In your seed, it would say. Not seeds. Paul even points out, it didn't say seeds. It says seed, one, coming from you. He said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay? So verse 4, it says, So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old whenever he left. And we talked about this. So 75 years old, and we know that whenever he received Isaac, when Isaac was finally given to them, when Sarah brought forth a child from Abraham, from herself, we're looking at about 25 years. That is a walk of faith, people. It also goes to the character of the people involved. You say, well, they made mistakes. Yeah, who doesn't? Show me a human being that doesn't make mistakes. And by doing that, there was a lot of things that uh, Jewish people still deal with today in that land. But the point is still this. Even as frail, broken human beings... They still trust, and they still are looking to God for the answer, okay? So anyway, so he takes Abraham. Uh, Abraham takes his wife, uh, Sarai, at the time, soon to be Sarah. They take Lot, and anyway, they're going to go through the land. I want you to look down at verse 7. Let's go down to verse 7 for just a moment. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants... I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. You're going to notice this about everywhere Abraham goes, he builds an altar. Now that may sound, once again, simplistic when we pass over. No, what, what, what's happening is everywhere Abraham goes, everywhere God has been moving upon his life, he builds an altar and worships the Lord. And they land. Where people are not worshiping the Lord, an altar is consecrated. Abraham gets down on his knees and he worships before the Lord. Important to remember that, okay? In your background. All right. 
So anyway, Abraham runs up in uh, Egypt. You remember how he's worried what people might say because his wife's pretty. I know I'm cursed with that. I have a gorgeous wife, you know. But anyway, everybody just trying. No, I'm just kidding. So he understands uh, that God has called him, but he is still fearful. You know, this is still new people. It isn't like these people have walked with the Lord forever. They're, they're feeling their way through this. As a matter of fact, if you look through Scripture, every time God gives his name, or they say like uh, Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, some people say, okay, God our provider, or Adonai Roach, okay, the shepherd who protects his own. You, you, these names were given because of what God revealed about his nature. They are learning who the Lord God is. So he's trying to keep himself from getting killed, and he almost gets Pharaoh killed in the process. Okay? But let's keep going for just a moment. So if you would go to chapter 13. So anyway, they start coming up out of Egypt. So we, we're, we're going to have it eventually. We're going to have some problems in the family. Like I said, we can't cover everything. We're just trying to get the heartbeat. So anyway, rather than having strife between Abraham and Lot, they decide to part ways. Abraham said, no, let's not, you know, have strife. He said, pick, you pick a direction. I'll pick the other. Okay. You go ahead, you pick. And of course he saw the beautiful lush land that is towards Sodom. And anyway, he starts heading that way and Abraham takes the other. And of course, God has something to say to him about this. This is all in the plan of God. So if you'll look at 1313 here, God bless the reading of the word. It says, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Okay. The reason why I included that in there is once again, take a look at what's happening in the land. You see wickedness, you see all kinds of sin that is surrounding them. God is dealing with sin. Like whenever he he, uh, destroyed the earth by a flood, he's making it abundantly clear. I'm not playing. Okay? Sin will not be tolerated. And eventually, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's not going to be the forgiveness of sin. For his own people, think about that. For his own people, there had to be a sacrifice that was made. The people that he loves, the people that he's called. Whether it be Abraham, whether it be Moses, whether it be any great prophet. The same sacrifice must be offered, foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all. Okay. So it says, in verse 14, it says, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, he says, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. So that land that's over there, and people say, well, the Jews are supposed to have more. It doesn't matter. Look, folks. God says this land is theirs forever, and it's still today. And whenever people came and took the land, if you ever go back, look at that seven days war. It's interesting. We'll talk about that at some point. But either way, that land has been promised to them, and it will be theirs forever. And so he tells them, he said, I'm giving these to your descendants forever, verse 16, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. That's a lot of folks, Okay. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent 
and went to dwell uh, by the temperate trees or the oak trees of Mamre. And it says, which are in Hebron. Now listen to the next words. Catch it again. And the Lord, or rather, how about this? And Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. So we have worship. Everywhere he goes, he's honoring and he's worshiping God. Now here's where he would encounter Melchizedek shortly thereafter. We're going to come back and highlight him in just a moment. People, this is something that you need to understand. When I say the heartbeat of God, here is another one of those beats. Okay, the hard beats, if you will. Go to chapter 15. So in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of God says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid. So God keeps reassuring Abram along the way, keeps reassuring him. I'm with you, Abram. I know that you don't have a child yet, but I'm with you. And Abram, this is your land. Abram, your descendants are going to be as stars in the sky, the dust of the sands of, you know, the sands of the sea, the dust of the earth. It's going to happen. Okay? And he keeps encouraging him because saints, think about it. All of us need encouragement, even in walking with the Lord. I wish our faith were such that somebody doesn't have to encourage us or God doesn't have to touch us in our heart. But we do. We do lose heart. We're flesh and blood. We come short. Okay? So he comes to Abram and he says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I'm your protector. And I'm the one who is going to reward you. I'm the reward. Okay, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, see that I go ch- seeing that I go childless? For there is a, uh, there's an heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant. This is the man in my household. Here's the one that I would honor most. Here's the one who's going to be heir in my house. You've told me that my descendants are going to be as the sand of the sea. You, you've told me these things. But God, how is it going to come to pass? If I, if I don't have children, how is this going to happen? The heir in my house is going to be one of my servants. So God, how can I know this? So, let's see. Verse 3, it says, Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So he's saying, Abraham, it's going to come from you. Now that's where Abram and Sarah begin to say, well, maybe this can be done through Hagar because it'll come through your body. No, just listen to God. Something that we learn through our lives. So verse 5, God encourages him again. Then he brought him outside and he said, look now toward heaven and count the stars. Abraham, look up. And it's a beautiful sight. Uh, if, around here occasionally you can do it pretty good. I'm going to tell you, in Georgia, where we live, there was nothing. Whenever I say there was no light, I mean there was no light. You could look up at the sky and there's stars everywhere, people. They literally are. But imagine him walking outside and he says, look up. And he says, isn't it beautiful? Do you see all the stars, Abraham? Yeah, yeah, Lord, I see them. I mean, there's more than any man can number. And he said, that's right, Abraham. That's how many descendants you're going to have. That's a very powerful and beautiful imagery of encouragement. 
Look toward heaven, count the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Here's the big one. Here's the one that Paul talks about. Here's part of that beat here. And so it says in here in verse 6, and he believed. He believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. People, this is salvation. This is what the Bible talks about whenever it says salvation. Now, some of you are kind of twisting your head at me. No, hear me out. I'll explain. Before there was any kind of law, before there was anything, God just says, trust me. That word believe there has to do with trust. In other words, God, what you have said, even though I do not see it, even though it is not a reality in my hand, I believe you and I trust you that it will be so. You are good for what you say. And God says, and I say, you are righteous. That's what Paul was talking about whenever he says salvation has always been by faith. Long before the law was given, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Salvation is not by the law, it is by faith. And there's one of those little bumps that go through Scripture. We're seeing it happen. To believe, to trust, to have faith in God, to cleave to him is a a transformational experience, okay? Righteousness given. Okay. You can even highlight that one in your Bible if you want to. Then he said to him, God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit? In other words, God, you know, is is there something you can give me? Can you show me that this is going to take place? Now, people, here it is. And the Lord God, he says to him, how shall I know I will inherit? So verse 9, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, so he wants these young, healthy animals. Then he brought all these to the Lord, and he cut them in two down the middle, and he placed one piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Okay, so he's got this sacrifice that is made. Now I want you to get this imagery, and I guess this is probably, I know I probably won't be on the screen, bear with me. But I'm going to use the aisle here as an example. So I would split the animals, and I would put some over here. I wouldn't get them on you. You don't have to worry about that. You're special. So anyway, you'd cut the animals, and you would split them to where there is a walkway in between the animals. And what would happen is that, can I borrow you, Katie Bell, for just a minute? Come over here on my my right side. I'll give you the right side of honor. Okay, can I hold your hand with your permission? I'm dreaming of love. Okay. I'm in the mood for love, but I don't, but it sounded a little weird. So anyway, so this is what would happen. We would make a covenant. I would look at you and say, Katie Bell, we have agreed on this thing. Okay. You said that I need to do A, B, and C. You said that you'll do A, B, and C. And we would walk through the animals. That's what we would do. And then we can turn around and we can do this. And then we'll turn around like this. And then you put your right foot in. And then you take your right foot out, and then we're cha-chaing. Okay, you're good. You're good. Thank you. But here is the thing. We walk through the sacrifice. We've made a promise with each other. It's called a covenant, okay? We make this covenant with each other, and the idea is this. If I break the covenant, may I be as one of these animals. Sacrifice is altered. It's symbolism that is there. We cannot break the covenant, okay? So let's take a look at this. 
Verse 11, and when the vultures, so these animals are there, obviously there's animals coming down wanting to eat it. And when the vultures come down, and there's symbolism here, but we'll, we'll get to that at some point. When the vultures came down on the carcass, Abraham, Abraham drove them away. He's keeping them off of it. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. In other words, this fear and trembling and ominousness. You know, it's, it's kind of like this. Realities hit him. You know, just boom. He realizes that there's something awesome. And now when I say awesome, I mean it in the true sense of the word. And all fearful thing is getting ready to take place. Okay? Then God said to Abraham, Now people, if you ever wanted to see one of these God moments of knowing what's happened in the future, listen to this. He's letting Abram in on it. So God says to him, you need to know something certainly, Abraham. I've promised you this land. I've promised you all these descendants. But he says, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in this land or in a land that is not theirs. And they will serve masters. There's what it's saying. They will serve them, the people of the land. And they will afflict them 400 years. That's Egypt, people. That's Egypt. He's telling them, your descendants will be slaves and they will be in Egypt for 400 years. He tells them that up front, that there is some hardship coming. But, and also the nation whom they serve, after that I'm going to judge them and they shall come out with great possessions. You remember how they plundered Egypt. Egypt gave them gold and all those kinds of things. Verse 15, now as for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They will come back to this land to worship. Okay, at some point in the future is what he's letting him know. And he also says he's not judging them until the time is appropriate. Now catch this, verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Okay. What's happening? What you're doing is they talk about a smoking oven. There was something that had great smoke coming out of it, and there is this torch, this fire it looked like, a light with the smoke that is coming around it. And here's what is interesting. Abraham is standing there while this smoking light, okay, goes right through those pieces. Not me and Katie Bell. Not me and anybody. Not Abraham and somebody. But God himself walks right between those pieces. We call this an unconditional or a unilateral covenant. So what happens is God passes through those pieces and he says, Abraham, oh, no, 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 no. You stay right there. I make you an oath, the Lord God. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter you anymore. I'm giving you a promise. This land is yours and it is to your descendants. Forevermore, this land is going to be yours. I, the Lord, have sworn it. This is yours. You're going to be my people. So catch this. So it passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given the land from the river, uh, 
From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and it talks about the Kenites, the Kenizzite, or Kenizzites, uh, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Paradite, Parasites, any other ite you want to throw in there. Okay, just throw ite on the end, the Philippites, I don't know. But anyway, all those ites that live in there, he says, all of this land, it is now yours. Okay. And you say, what's the big deal here? What's the big deal here? Okay, here's the big deal. Here is one point that because Abraham is listening and obeying God, God says, Abram, this isn't dependent upon you. I am promising you because you have loved me and because you have trusted me. I now covenant with you, swearing by myself alone, this land is yours. This will belong to you. I will give it to you. Now, importance there is that now you're going to see, even in Egypt, whenever they come out and they're conquering the, guess what it's called? What kind of land? Promised land. That's why it's called the promised land. This land that they're going to take was promised by God. And it's going to belong to them forever, even to this very day, and until the Lord returns and whenever he creates it in you. Any questions? I'm worried about these questions because, boy, y'all pick out those things like, now you remember, no, okay, I'm just kidding. Any questions? All right, let's pray. Ah, any special prayer requests tonight? Anybody need to be anointed with prayer? I made a mistake last time. I didn't do it. And then we had a threefer. All right. If everybody stand with me and let's pray. Praise the Lord. Praise you, Lord God. Father God, I pray your blessings upon every person here. I pray, Father, that we as a church will glorify your name. Please forgive us of our sins. Give us grace. Father, teach us how we should live. And, Father, that which would glorify you most. We love you, Lord. We do. Teach us, Father, how to walk with you and to be pleasing in your eyes. These things we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you're walking out the door, I want to tell you, I've still got a couple of videos that I need to make, okay? Got a couple of them that are good for you, but starting probably, uh, I'm hopefully going to have them done by Friday, but what I'll do is I'll send an email out to everybody, or you can check our webpage. We'll have training for each one of the teams that we're going to be implementing here in the church, so be looking for that. Any team that you're interested in, I want you to watch the training. You can also watch the training for all of them. It doesn't matter. You can say, well, I'm not sure I want to fit into or which one's going to fit best for me. I want you to take a look at them, and then hopefully by the first week of February, second week at the latest, we can get these implemented, okay? I may have a time during Sunday school, maybe once or twice next month, where I might have a few of you come in if you're interested for a Sunday school class. And what we'll do is we'll do some hands-on training and certain other things. But the idea is we are going to be Jesus. Amen? The Lord bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for the covenant.